0: Difficult Discipleship. Jesus leaves us with some interesting words. I don't remember that verse in the song Father Abraham about ignoring the one who is suffering. But we continue our journey entitled Difficult Discipleship. In this past month, we've heard some difficult words from Jesus and Jeremiah. For we began this journey with Jesus telling the crowds, whoever comes to me but does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even life itself cannot be my disciples. Jesus was saying that if you want to follow me, your primary allegiance must be to me, not your family not your country, not your political party, not your own hopes and dreams, our primary allegiance must be to Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that it's going to cost everything, maybe even your very life. You don't have to come. For discipleship is difficult, more difficult than we can even imagine. Jesus continued By telling the parables of the shepherd and the woman who lost her coin. The shepherd who lost his sheep and the woman who lost her coin. Discipleship means you don't just leave the sheep to fend for itself. It means going into the wilderness until you find it. It means dropping everything and looking for the lost coin. Jesus continued by telling the parable of the dishonest manager who gives away his own resources, the last that he has left after he loses his job and faces an uncertain future. This man acted faithfully even during one of the darkest moments of his life. Our commitment to Jesus means giving God our everything. It includes seeking out the lost places and looking for the presence of God even there. It includes continuing to remain faithful even when the storms of life come. The battle is not won. Jesus who died shall be satisfied when heaven and earth be won. Today's Gospel reading, we hear about a rich man and Lazarus. For there was a rich man who feasted scrumptiously each and every day, and there was a poor man named Lazarus who lied at his gate starving. Many would suggest that the rich man had been blessed. He had more than he needed, so God must have blessed him. God must have rewarded his faithfulness with financial blessings. These individuals also might suggest that the poor man was cursed. He must have suffered because of his own unrepented sin. Or maybe he was just lazy. Maybe he just needs to pull himself up by his own bootstraps and get a job. Yet, Jesus, as he often does, seems to be suggesting that maybe the opposite is what is actually true. Jesus said the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. And the rich man died and was buried And in Hades where he was being tormented. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water to cool my tongue. For I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is being comforted and you are in agony. You know, according to Jesus's parable. The one who would have been considered lazy or the one who would have been considered a sinner was not the one who was cursed. It was actually the rich man who was cursed. Jesus often did, taught, and said the opposite of what people expected. And in this story, he seems to be suggesting a flip in the roles. He seems to be suggesting that our natural assumptions about other people are not true. That our initial perspectives on other people are not true. For the rich man needed Lazarus more than he could ever understand. He needed Lazarus on this earth to challenge his comfort. He needed Lazarus to speak truth into his life. He needed Lazarus to bless him. And at the end of his life, he began to recognize his need for Lazarus. And so he asks Lazarus to help him. But he is denied. It's ironic that on this earth, he was the one who was doing the denying. And now in the world to come, he is the one who is being denied. The flipping of the reality. This, Is ridiculous. This is not the way that the world works. For people of Jesus' day believed that people who were rich were blessed, and people who were poor obviously were cursed. And here Jesus was challenging the assumptions of his followers, challenging the assumptions of the crowd. People who were suffering aren't necessarily suffering because of their own sin. But those who are rich might be rich because of their sin. You know, most scholars would call this portion of text out of the Gospel of Luke uh, an apocalyptic text. With its vivid journey to the afterlife and its exaggerated imagery, this story fits well into what we would call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, similar to the book of Revelation, serves as a wake up call, pulling back the curtain to open our eyes to something we urgently need to see before it's too late. During his life, the rich man did not even notice Lazarus, who was at his gate each day. Maybe he saw him, but he didn't mentally notice him. Have you done that? Have you seen someone physically but not mentally notice them? During his life, he didn't even notice the poor man who was at his gate every single day. And now, in the afterlife, he notices Lazarus. But now, it's too late. This is ridiculous. What was Jesus trying to help his followers understand before it's too late? Maybe Jesus was saying how we treat people matters, especially those less fortunate than ourselves. This is the foolishness of faith. We would look at that scenario and say, well, Lazarus certainly needed the rich man, right? He needed his food, he needed his help, his home, his support. But maybe what Jesus is saying is, no, it's not that Lazarus needed the rich man, but the rich man actually needed Lazarus. How we treat other people matters, especially those less fortunate than ourselves. Not with power and privilege and authority, but in humility, in the context of relationship. This is the foolishness of faith. The rich man had numerous opportunities to get to know Lazarus. But now it is too late. But what about his sisters and brothers? I mean, they, his siblings still have time to open their eyes. They still have time to see the poor people at their gates before the chasm becomes permanent. And so the rich man shouts while in agony, send Lazarus to them that he might warn them. So they do not come to this place And I wonder if the five siblings, the sisters and brothers who are alive, I wonder if they still have time to open their eyes. They still have time to see the poor people at their gates. And I wonder if that's who we're supposed to find ourselves as in the story. We who are still alive have been warned about our urgent situation, the parable makes clear. We have Moses and the prophets. We have the Holy Scriptures. We have heard about God's care for the poor and hungry. We even have someone who rose from the dead. But the question is, will we, the five sisters and brothers, see? Will we, the five sisters and brothers, notice the Lazarus among us? Will we heed the warning before it is too late? We follow the path of Christ at times, it seems utterly ridiculous. The rich man stopping to spend time and provide for Lazarus seems foolish. Yeah, the rich man could have offered him food, he could have helped him, but he would still be operating from power and privilege. But could he have entered into Lazarus' story? Could he have got to know? Lazarus? Is it possible that the rich man actually needed Lazarus more than Lazarus needed the rich man? Is that what Jesus was getting at? What held the rich man back? Was it time? Was it his busyness? His own reputation? And if I'm seen with him, was it Lazarus's reputation? Was it his job? Did he just not, was he just too busy, too much working too often, that he didn't have time to notice Lazarus at his gate? Was it his money? Was it his friends? Was it his family. Whatever it was, the rich man did not notice Lazarus. And it seems as if the rich man didn't understand that discipleship is difficult. He needed Lazarus for his salvation. This is absurd. The people we ignore, the people who make us uncomfortable, the people that we would rather brush off, Jesus is suggesting that we need them for our salvation? This is utterly ridiculous. Following Christ is absurd. Being a disciple of Christ means seeking all the places where darkness is winning and doing something about it. It means standing up for those who are on their knees. It means crying out for those who have no more tears to shed. It means laying down our life for the sake of the gospel. Even at the beginning of this journey of difficult discipleship, Jesus suggested that it means taking up our cross and following him all the way, even to the place of the skull. Our salvation is directly related to how we treat the Lazaruses that we encounter each and every day, for we need them for our salvation. This is utterly ridiculous. Following Christ is Absurd. And in today's Old Testament reading, the prophet Jeremiah does something utterly ridiculous as well. With the Babylonian armies coming and coming fast, Jeremiah buys a field in the territory about to be taken over. This makes little sense. This is utterly ridiculous. This is absurd. Jeremiah believed that God was the most important reality for him and his people. And throughout the entire book of Jeremiah, he caused the people to repentance. But the people continued to ignore the pleadings of the prophet. And The Babylonians came. They captured the city and took the leaders of the people into exile. And yet they allowed the people to remain in the city. Eventually, the people plotted with the Egyptians that they were going to try to overthrow them, but it didn't work. And so the Babylonians were angry, and they crushed Judah. They destroyed the city. This was the darkest time in their history. In a matter of days, all of the people would be marched off into exile, never to come home again. Then we have Jeremiah, who's in prison because he was accused of collaborating with the enemy. And while he is in prison, He does something absolutely absurd, utterly ridiculous. He buys a field. At the very moment that he bought it, the Babylonian armies were camping on it. He was in prison. They were about to be scattered into exile, and he foolishly bought a field. Eugene Peterson, in Running with the Horses, suggests that Jeremiah knew that buying the field looked impractical and foolish. It was against history, against reason, against public opinion. He didn't buy the field on the advice of his broker, but by the leading of God. He was not planning on a retirement cabin on the property. He was witnessing an involvement of the continuity of God's promises. See, Jeremiah believed that impending armies paled in comparison to the reality of God. Buying the field was a deliberate, yet foolish act of hope. It is much easier to languish in despair than to hope. Because languishing in despair costs us nothing. There's no risk involved to languish in despair. But Jeremiah hoped. Jeremiah believed. Jeremiah had faith. What's interesting about faith is faith implies doubt. Faith implies risk. None of us have certainty. We all have faith. And a logical consequence of faith is doubt. And so, like the prophet Jeremiah, hoping, believing a sacred act that may be looked at by those outside of the community as absurd, as utterly ridiculous. It wouldn't be faith if we didn't have doubt. Jeremiah hoped. Jeremiah had faith. Jeremiah believed. And it is only when everything is hopeless that hope offers any strength whatsoever All acts of hope can look silly. They can expose us to ridicule. You know, when we think of hope, sometimes we get hope mixed up with wishing. Wishing is desiring something but not doing anything about it. But true biblical hope is an action. An action like buying a field. Searching for a lost sheep. Giving away the last of your resources when you're out of a job. Taking up your cross meeting the person at your gate. Hope believes that God will complete the work that God has begun, specifically when the appearances oppose it. Hope is affirming that this is indeed our Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus will only be satisfied when heaven and earth become one Hope is staring out into the darkness and believing and choosing to believe and act regardless of the circumstances around you. Jeremiah believed that even though the Babylonians had conquered the people, even though they'd ravished the land, that God would one day restore the land. he hoped and his hope was directly tied to action. Hope is an action. It's not a wish. It's an action. Unlike the rich man, Jeremiah took a risk. The rich man refused to take a risk and get to know Lazarus. He refused to risk his reputation. He refused to hope for a deeper, more authentic life in relationship with Lazarus. Jeremiah took a risk. Jeremiah foolishly bought a field as they were being conquered, as he was in prison, as the army was on the field. And when we take a risk, when we hope, no matter how ridiculous it looks, when we are obedient, God does something. It takes courage to act in hope. Courage that the rich man apparently did not have. The rich man did not have the humility to believe that he could gain something from building a relationship with Lazarus. For rich people don't associate with beggars. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. People in prison don't buy land as their city is being conquered, right? That's ridiculous. That's absurd. Difficult discipleship is rooted in the utter ridiculousness of hope. True, authentic disciples choose hope. They choose faith. Even when the world screams something different in their ears, they choose hope. They choose to trust. Hope leads to action. So even when the storms of life come, we can stand firm because of hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, maybe notice, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, behold, notice, I am making all things. outside, working. God is making all things new. Difficult discipleship is hoping that God is indeed making all things new when our eyes, our ears, and our experiences tell us differently. Difficult discipleship is acting on that hope and inviting Lazarus in. Or maybe even foolishly buying yet, it's much easier to languish in despair than to live a life of hope. Languishing in despair doesn't cost us anything. It's not a risk. It's much easier. It doesn't cost our time, our talents, or our treasures. Languishing in despair is much easier. Less risk involved. Than hope, And as we look around the state of our world, it's pretty easy to languish in despair. Are we languishing in despair? Or are we living a life of hope? A life rooted in action that God will indeed fulfill God's promises. South African social rights activist and retired Anglican bishop Desmond Tutu once said, Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. So, may we live lives of difficult discipleship. May we faithfully follow Christ no matter how utterly ridiculous or absurd, it appears, to those outside of the community of faith. And may we have the eyes and ears to see and hear God's light among us and around us, even if it's a field covered with the military that's invading, or even if it's a man laying down right outside of our gate. May we see God's light despite the circumstances of darkness around us. May that be our prayer. May that be our creed. May that be the essence of our very life.